You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Uh, I advise companies with FDA-regulated products. So if you think about drugs, wonder about devices, obsess over pharmacy, this is the podcast for you. This is the interview for you. Uh, I'm an attorney, but I'm not your attorney. I'm a pharmacist, but I'm not your pharmacist. So this is neither legal advice nor clinical advice. Um, However, these are considerations, and they don't necessarily reflect the opinions of the host, the guest, or the employers. If you like what you hear, please like, leave a comment, please subscribe, please share. Um, You can always uh, ask our guest questions. Uh, and always reach out to me on Twitter uh, at Darshan Talks, uh, or just go to our website at darshantalks.com. Today's podcast, today's interview is really interesting because we're going to talk to a 340B expert. And if you're in the pharmacy world, you you know that this is something you have to deal with, have to understand. So this is really interesting to me because it's one of those areas that I've stayed away from for the most part. So I get to hear and learn more and more about it. Um, our guest today is um, the, the CEO of Integrated Pharmacy Services, Inc., also known as IPS. Um, she has extensive experience with 340B auditing and consulting services. Um, our guest today is Rita Basket, RPH. Hey, Rita. Hi. Hi. Good day. Good day. <laughs> It's good to have you on. So we're going to start with a really basic question because I'm I'm pretty basic. Um, the the term 340B we've heard that sent out multiple times. What does this actually mean? Why should anyone care about it? Why are pharmacies all talking about it? So wonderful 340B, and we hear that all the time. What is 340B? It's actually uh, the part of the statute that was written back. Um, in, and you put me on the spot with dates, but back in 1992, the Federal Register is the um, statute that enables uh, manufacturers to give a rebate upfront in the price that we call 340B um, to covered entities that are eligible to receive that pricing for their outpatient purchases, not inpatient, but outpatient. So it affects all covered entity types um, from large disproportionate share hospitals to critical access hospitals, um, HRSA grantees, um, which are Ryan White's, um, uh, STD, TB clinics, um, and federally qualified health centers, uh, community health center world. So um, they're able to purchase their their pharmaceutical drugs uh, for their covered outpatients at a upfront rebate um, price. So, so why... Why is there this upfront rebate price for these these groups? So when this, when the statute was written, it was um, to enable, um, as the Federal Register states, to enable uh, uh, scarce resources um, 
uh, to these entities to be able to um, use those resources, basically um, how they, especially the hospital segment, how they see fit. But when it comes to the grantees, they report this as uh, program income and they're able to uh, allocate those that revenue savings to whatever programs to um, benefit their service line. So hospitals the same way, but the hospitals don't report it, um, but the grantees do because it's part of their grant award stipulation. Um, but manufacturers, they participate um, if they sign a pharmaceutical pricing agreement, the PPA, um, with the feds, if they want their drug on a Medicare, Medicaid formulary, they have to sign that pharmaceutical pricing agreement. And once they sign that, they have to abide by the 340B statute to provide those discounts uh, to eligible um, entities. So it, it seems like a bit of a hammer. The fact is that if you are a pharmaceutical company, you kind of have to be on Medicare and Medicaid. Like, what are your options? It's 80% of your purchasing power, I believe. So, so if you're a pharmaceutical company, you kind of automatically need to be part of 340B then, or at least you need to sign a PPA, which means that theoretically companies will have uh, access to your drugs by 340B. First of all, am I accurate in that assertion? Yes, yes, you are. And I mean, there are a few manufacturers that do not participate. Um, you know, one is a snake venom drug because they know they have no competition in the marketplace. So um, if you're in the Midwest and you're <laughs> you're in California desert and you get bit by a venomous snake, um, you want that drug. Unfortunately, there's no 340B price for it. And it's extremely expensive. Um, and then you have another manufacturer like uh, the one that makes a injectable uh, acetaminophen, um, and that drug is old as dirt, uh, but <laughs> because they created this wonderful injectable form, um, they don't, they have no competition. So they didn't sign a PPA. And unfortunately, you know, there's no 340B price. That, which is interesting to me because I, I mean, the, the idea that Tylenol, or, or it's not Tylenol as, as we all know, it's the generic acetaminophen. Um, that is now a branded product because it's I, uh, IV. And I know in Europe it's been available for dog years, for example. Um, right. But, but um, the idea that no one's come out and said that we're going to have a generic out there is, is astounding to me. But we won't get into that part of it. Uh, as a pharmacist, I'm just kind of still astounded by that. Um, the, the part that I, I'm trying to understand, though, is that what you're saying is these companies have to participate. But what is the onus on the healthcare providers or the healthcare uh, organization to ensure that, because um, I mean, what stops them from buying all their drug is a 340B because there are additional rebates, it's, it's pretty low cost. And what kind of cost do they have to sort of buy that? Does that question make sense? Uh, yes, yes it does. Actually, so depending on the type of um, entity you are, you have certain compliance restrictions. So there are um, some regulatory guidance, not rules. <laughs> I'm going to be very careful what I say there because that's the issue at hand with a lot that's going on in the 340B program is that HRSA, who is the authorizing um, uh let's say they are HRSA, which is a division of, of CMS, which is a division mm -hmm. of HHS. HRSA um, manages the 340B program through the Office of Pharmacy Affairs. So that's kind of the hierarchy in the government um, 
relation of of 340B. But HRSA doesn't have rulemaking authority, so all they can issue is a bunch of guidances. So with that, um, they have several guidances around restrictions based on your entity type. And some of those restrictions were built in when the statute was written in 92, um, and then in 20... Make sure I get my years right, and somebody probably will correct me out there. I believe it when the... um, Oh, gosh. See, I knew it was going to come up all the dates. (laughs) Excuse me for the dates. Just generally speaking, yeah. So basically, when the new hospital categories became eligible, they had restrictions built in the law when they became um, available. So we have different restrictions based on different hospital types. So they have to apply um, to the compliancy. Like, for instance large disproportionate share hospitals that register as a dish entity, they have something called a GPO prohibition violation. Um, Basically, it keeps them from buying um, their GPO price drugs on their outpatients. And since 340B is totally an only outpatient program, if they violate that prohibition, which is the only thing that can technically get you kicked out of 340B, and you get audited and if they find a GPO prohibition, you're removed from the program until you become in compliance. Other hospital types like sole community hospitals, rural referral centers, critical access hospitals, those are the newly eligible hospitals as of 2012, I believe. Um, they don't have that restriction of a GPO prohibition. Um, so they can do things like cherry pick on their pricing on the outpatient side. But as far as 340B concerned, it is an outpatient only service. And so it started really, if we go back to the original statute, hospitals only started using 340B for retail um, prescriptions. Then somebody got a bright idea and morphed this into, well, emergency room is outpatient, observation status is outpatient, same day surgery is outpatient. So then we morphed into what we call this now mixed use area and where we started a whole new can of worms with the program from going to just a retail benefit to a mixed use benefit. So now that added another layer of complex of complex uh, complexity where we then had a pop-up of vendors and created a whole new marketplace. So you had all these third-party administrators come out and create software to manage this whole mixed use inventory um, and they exploded. So we got several vendors. And remember, they're for profit, but the hospitals are not not for profit. Um, That's a qualification um, stipulation to be eligible for 340B. You have to be a nonprofit. But people are surprised, even as some of the type of hospitals that participate that are nonprofit. Um, They didn't know that the John Hopkins of the world is a nonprofit. They didn't know Cedar Mount Sinai was a nonprofit. Vanderbilt, these big entities, uh, but they participate in 340B because they meet the qualifications. And there's other stipulations in that qualifications. Um, they are um, they actually use an inpatient calculation to determine eligibility, which is weird because this is an outpatient program. But the senator in Utah, his name is Grassley, uh, developed this calculation uh, to it made it a requirement to be eligible. So if you're a dish hospital, you need this inpatient uh, calculation that's based on your Medicare stays, um, your um, your um, Medicaid stays, inpatient stays, that creates a dish percentage, which is a formula 
that the government pays back to the hospital. So they use this arbitrary number of 11.75 as a percentage to meet for hospitals, for dish hospitals, and then they've lowered it to 8% for so community uh, rural referral centers. And since critical access hospitals don't bill on that uh, type of format uh, to Medicare, they don't have a percentage to meet. And the grantees don't either since they don't bill. So it's a convoluted way <laughs> uh, to be eligible and how the program evolved to the mixed use side of the business evolved. Um, and so now we're seeing evolution again um, in the years 340B has been around. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take it back like 50 steps because <laughs> I'm obviously this. you are obviously an expert. So I apologize if I'm dumbing it down, but I want to make sure I understand this properly. Here's what you're telling me. You're telling me that there's certain hospitals that qualify. One of the criteria for that, for those hospitals is they have to be a not-for-profit, right? right. We, we got that part right. Okay. Um, now what they can, they will qualify for basically a lower price for these drugs is what you're telling me. Yes. Um, it, the, these drugs are intended for outpatient use for the most Correct. part. Um, unfortunately, what's happened, I say unfortunately, but or fortunately, depending on your perspective, what's happened is that um, these hospitals or these appropriate, these healthcare organizations went, well, uh, ER is outpatient and observation status outpatient. So maybe I can use 340B products for those statuses as well, for patients who are in those statuses as well. That's correct. Um, so I followed you through that process. My question then is, I lost you at the dish percentage. When is the dish percentage use why is that a like is that the percentage of how much how much how your clients are split up how your patients are split up or wh what does so that represent so to back that up it, so it's an inpatient calculation um on a medicare cost report so every hospital has to follow medicare cost report annually okay. and when they follow that cost report they have to calculate what they call a dish percentage dish payment adjust adjustment disproportionate share payment adjustment so okay. on their cost report, that calculation is actually based on the number of days um, of inpatient stay for Medicare and Medicaid patients. And so CMS gives a payment back to the hospitals based on their percentage. But somebody used that, and I, and I believe it was Grassley from Utah. You're from Utah. <laughs> I believe he was the one who decided to use that arbitrary number percentage as a qualification metrics. And so out of participate? Right, to participate in 340B. So okay. you have to meet an 11.75 percentage or higher burden to be eligible if you're a dish hospital. If uh, you're critical of what, so what, what is the numerator and the denominator to understand the dish percentage? So that is a very difficult calculation, and that's what, they use actuaries to do that, and not me. Okay. So, <laughs> let me rephrase the question. What I'm really trying to understand is: so, is it the number of Medicare patients versus the number of patients who might be eligible for um, for basically a 340B program? Like, nope, has nothing not to do with outpatient services at all. Oh, oh, oh it's, okay. all, it's an inpatient calculation. Okay, so it is just. It's a, so think of it basically as a magic number that pops up. And right, that's calculated based on Medicare right. and Medicaid stays, inpatient bed stays at the hospital. So it's an, it's an actual formula um, yeah. that they use to calculate. 
But okay. from the 340B perspective, is that that number is what's used to make you eligible to participate in what type of entity you can be to participate. So if you're a dish hospital, that number has to be 11.75 or higher. Okay. Um, if you're a rural referral center, sole community hospital, right. um, you have to meet 8%. 8%. So okay. I have, so just to give you a real life experience, I have a client that is a rural hospital. They may be about 50 beds, small little rural hospital, no yeah. man's land, Texas. So they, their numbers fluctuate. So technically they're a sole community hospital, but because their dish percentage is above 11.75, they register as a dish hospital. And the reason they do that is because there is some added implications for being a sole community hospital or rural referral center that you cannot buy drugs that have an orphan status at 340B. So they added, when that new legislation came out to um, allow those new hospitals into the 340B program, they added an extra uh, prohibition to them. So they don't have the GPO prohibition, but yeah. they do have an orphan drug. Um, they can't buy drugs that have orphan status. So I'm a blast a company. Not sure if I can do it, but I will. Uh, <laughs> so Genentech, <laughs> who is one of the biggest manufacturers of orphan drugs, does does not allow those hospital types to buy their drugs. Other manufacturers like Janssen, J and J, who have orphan drugs, give what they call a voluntary price. They can't say it's 340B, but they do match 340B pricing and allow those covered entities to buy at orphan-like, at, at 340B-like prices, those orphan drugs, but not Genentech. Right, so, so let, let's ask that question, right? Um, from a, and, and I'm, I'm not gonna name names, but you are and that, that's fine. Um, what, what I'm gonna ask is, what is the incentive for a company to provide the 340B pricing? It sounds like it's a no-win situation for them. Right, it is a no-win situation for them. Um, if they don't want to participate, if they don't want to, if they don't want their drugs on a Medicare Medicaid formulary, then, then no, you know. I, I'm, I'm talking about something like Genentech, who, who's basically not required to. Oh, for but, the orphan drug, yeah. um, they saw no incentive in it. I guess they they basically want to um, prohibit them from buying it at a 340B price. And so, in that case, those are drugs that are typically brand drugs. They're not generics. So. Right. They're brand name drugs. So you can't even get a GPO price for some of those brand name drugs because they don't play ball with the GPOs. So right. these hospitals are unfortunately, if they have to buy those drugs, they're buying them at what we call um, at a like typically a wholesale acquisition cost. It's right. a very high price and it's very unfortunate. And so I wish they would change their position. <laughs> um, hoping this broadcast will help some hospitals out there that would love to buy those drugs and help their patients and their patient population but it's been years and they never budged so 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 let's explore that a little bit so so what you're saying is there are certain uh drugs uh especially rare disease state drugs that are particularly problematic because patients want access to the drugs mm -hmm. the money doesn't actually go to the patient the patients are not the ones who would pull out the money from their pockets to pay for the drugs. It would be money that goes into the hospital's pockets 
or the, the uh, rural community, the, the community center's pockets. Is that correct or am I wrong with Right, so 340B as a benefit is stated in the federal register for or for in covered entities to be able to um, to take those uh, resources and basically um, use those resources to whatever benefit that they find um, necessary. Right. So you have covered entities that will take that benefit and expand clinics. They'll add um, maybe a diabetes education clinic, COAG, sure. expand services. Some sure. hospitals use it to pay down bad debt. You know, sure. they may use it to offset indigent care programs that they're running right. at their um, hospital, um, sliding scale fee programs at the pharmacy so that they can pass on some savings. Um, but there is no direct keep the money. Or just keep the money. Or just keep the money. Or they can keep the money. Exactly. Right. But there's no indication where they have to report those savings right. from in the hospital. And that's been right. a big contentious issue with Congress over 340B because they want transparency and to know how these hospitals are using those savings. That's what the manufacturers want. They want transparency. Right. So when we look at the grantees, like the community health centers um, and other federal grantees, they have to report it on a line as program income because right. they have to offset their dollars and cents in order to be re-eligible for their grants. Interesting. Okay, okay, okay. So, but the hospitals don't. So there's been a lot of arguments that maybe these hospitals should add it to their IRS 990 forms um, stating this is how much we've saved in revenue right. from 340B. I don't see a problem with it, to be honest. I don't. I don't see a problem with that because they also see on that 990, here's how much charitable spend and bad debt. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So so what I hear you saying is that this could be if we if in the end the 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 person that's supposed to benefit from all of this is always the patient. That that's really both you and I as pharmacists, that's that's where we start from. Right? We start from the perspective that patients need to benefit. Uh, my my question for you is, oh, hold on. Ooh, I, I already have a comment. So I'm going to stop my comment and I'm going to read out this one from Erica Devine. I think 340B is fascinating. I appreciate, over, appreciate your overview since it's so complex. The program is explored in terms of covered entities and contracted pharmacies and see compensatory uh, responses from all players. Discriminatory reimbursement, duplicate discounting, transparency on how money is spent. In your opinion, how do we control for these to ensure the program truly keeps patient needs at the center? So, wow, that's a really loaded one, and that that's a good, great question. And so, again, it's going to be my opinion. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, there is a lot of complexity, and we want to see the benefit naturally handed to the patient. So, one of the key things is that. You know, manufacturers already do offer patient assistance programs um, right. to enable patients uh, to receive who are underinsured or uninsured. So there are those programs out there from the manufacturers. This was benefit was solely for the entity. So um, there are things that these covered entities have to do in a compliance world. And that's what I do professionally is audit and consult to make sure that they are following the guidelines that are um, outlined by HRSA and OPA um, to keep them in line and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do to keep the program solvent. So pharma is fine, trying to find holes in how to basically dismantle the program because remember pharma is for profit. 
They are not not for profit. They have shareholders. They right. have people to report to. And if we look at, there was actually some publication and I can't name it right off the top of my head that just showed how much pharma's revenue increased in the last year um, during this whole contract pharmacy issue that's currently going on now by them denying sales and contract pharmacy. Sure, we've seen the growth of contract pharmacy explode over the years. Um, March of 2010 is when HRSA opened the floodgates, as I like to call it, um, and allowed um, covered entities to go from one contract pharmacy arrangement to multiple. And they put in, they, it's basically an infinite number that these hospitals can have. I had one client that had 110 contract pharmacy relationships. Wow. Yes. So okay. it's huge. And it was a huge academic medical center, and their revenue was in the, you know, 10 to 12 million a year. In revenue. So, but what did they do with that revenue? They opened several medication therapy management clinics for pharmacists to be able to um, help patients, um, keep patients compliant on their drug therapy, because then by opening these clinics, they're actually able to then decrease um, readmissions, hospital, you know, uh, ER visits, um, unnecessary visits. Um, and actually even pass on some savings in, a, like I said, in a sliding scale fee program. So maybe their insulin is only a dollar copay or whatever. So hospitals found unique ways to make sure that it's coming back to the patient. And I like when I see that happen at an organization, I tell them, build this, your mission statement, build it into your policies so that they understand where these revenue and where these dollars are actually going. This is so interesting, and, and we can keep going. I'm at 25 minutes already, and I feel like we haven't, we literally haven't touched the surface. Because sure I, <laughs> like, we're not, I don't even think we're like glazing the surface yet, because one of the things I really wanted to get into was the, the decisions that came out in the last week. And, okay. and you've, been, you've been talking to clients about this. So we're well past time. I usually aim these to be about 15, 20 minutes, and you are well past that. But but let's sort of address that. Um, generally speaking, what yes. happened the last last week around the court decisions, and and what was the impact of that, and where are we now? Great, great question. Is and and it ex actually exploded. So there's been several pharma um, companies from, and there's I believe eight manufacturers that are currently denying 340B pricing to contract pharmacy relationships. And some of them decided, like the most recent, Boehring or Ingelheim, decided to allow a covered entity to have one contract pharmacy relationship. Even though you know patients, your patients are going everywhere, but you're yeah. only allowed one. So they're denying the sale for those other contract pharmacy relationships. Revenue has shown they exploded over the last year due to this um, denial of, of pricing. So actually, there was two, uh, three, three judges um, that just handed down an opinion. We had a judge in D.C. Friday night to hand down an opinion and the uh, Novartis and United Therapeutics lawsuit basically saying upholding pharma's position. So that muddied the water because it's like, OK, what about the statute? So and about the PPA, the pricing agreement. So in Indianapolis and I believe New Jersey, that's uh, Lilly's lawsuit in Indianapolis and uh, Nova Nordisk and Sanofi's lawsuit in New Jersey. Those judges' uh, opinion was that pharma had actually violated the PPA. 
So by violating it, but they still didn't say they believe HHS um, is legally sound to still force the manufacturers to offer 340B pricing. So we're still in a muddy water right now um, with these lawsuits and HHS has a lot to do on their end. One thing we know, HRSA does not have rulemaking authority. That right. has to be a congressional act. It's not something that CMS can hand down. So it will take an act of Congress. And we already know what's going on with Congress uh, <laughs> to give rulemaking authority to HRSA so that they can force laws to make these manufacturers adhere to the, to the guidances and the opinions that they pass down. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm conceding the fact that I'm not a um, HRSA expert for sure. Um, however, the fact is that HRSA is an agency just like any other. And the FDA cannot pass laws, for example, but the FDA does have rulemaking authority. It does um, pa passes regulations all the time. Um, and then there are guidances that are non-binding. Um, I just want to make sure, and again, this may not be a question for you, this might be a question for another lawyer, and I'll ask the lawyer the question whenever I, I meet one that does this kind of work. But uh, you, you point out pointedly that, it, that HRSA does not have rulemaking authority. Do you mean that they've been really promulgating via guidance for the most part, and exactly. that's been the problem? That's okay. the problem, guidance and opinions. <laughs> okay. So, which, which, for the most part, even the FDA's guidances are, literally the, the FDA's opinion starts... The guidance starts off by saying this is not binding on any party, uh, including the FDA. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't read the Hersel ones, but I imagine it says something to that effect. Uh, I don't even believe it says that. That's okay. not binding. So they they push this out as enforcement actions, and okay. that's why pharma is suing. So right. that's so when they decided to go from one uh, contract pharmacy to multiple, that yeah. was where. Her it was a unilateral decision by HRSA as an agency to exactly. decide if that's okay. Okay, that's where the problem came about. Where that's they... where it's coming from. So since there is no rule that HRSA can pass to say, this is law, you know, this is our rule, you have to abide, um, Pharma challenged it. Took them 11 years to do it, but yeah. they challenged it. So yeah. um, 10 years to do it. I mean, this happened in March of 2010. So right. um, I guess with the explosion and they see the dip in their pharmaceutical sales, they're getting a little nervous. You know, they want to make sure their 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 fifth duration of children um, <laughs> has those has that financial gain. Because again, remember, they're for profit. So you want to make sure those shareholders are, you know, meeting and, and they haven't had an issue in years meeting their shareholder burden, but they feel that this is out of hand. And there's another layer to it. You got the PBM industry. That's another complexity. So the PBMs are fighting for their rebates. And the manufacturer is telling them, no, we gave it as a 340B rebate, so now we don't have to pay you PBM. So the PBMs are are at it. Um, there's going to be a, excuse the term for lack of better, there's going to be soon a come to Jesus between the covered entities, the PBMs, and pharma. There's but why do you think this is isn't a come to Jesus moment? The, 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 I, it sounds like last week was a come to Jesus moment. But it's still muddy. So right. I mean, oh, I didn't say Jesus is the answer. I'm just saying Jesus, Jesus, you you came. Jesus kind of went. It's a little so we're still gonna leave it muddy. You guys can figure this shit out. 
Sorry. <laughs> right. So somebody's got to figure it out. And somebody has to find what will make common ground and common sense among everyone. And yeah. so that's really why um, I think pharma definitely stopped the contract pharmacy sales was more so because of the pushback from the PBMs. Because they're like, hey, we're paying two rebates. We're paying one to 340B. And then we turn around and we're paying one to pharma um, to um, PBM land. And PBMs have no transparency. That's a whole nother conversation. Um, but there's no transparency in the PBM space and they're for profit as well. So yes. here we go. We have two for profit industries, you know, coming down on the backs of the nonprofit industry, the covered entities. Who's going to win this battle? I don't know. But here's the fundamental thing. And I'm going to challenge you on this. Nonprofit doesn't mean make, does not make a profit. It just means does not distribute a profit. So they could be making billion, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in profit, just not distributing to shareholders. Exactly. So, so the argument right. it's not for profit is a little bit of a um, fun but, money. But it is, but at the same at the same token, most covered entities, and I'm I'm being really clear on this part. Most covered entities are safety net hospitals. They are your or the safety nets of the communities. Even though I did name a couple of big guys out there, you know, you you know, you they are usually the community hospital that is picking up the most uninsured and underinsured patients. So so I, I think that's a great point to make. So I think the question comes down to. Who's actually benefiting? And it, it, before before Erica asked the question, I was sort of starting starting to get into this a little bit, which was um, I'm sorry, I'm well past time, but I, I want to kind of this is so fun. Um, the, the, in the end, if you come at it from the perspective of who needs to benefit, in the end, across every single group we're talking about, the one common thing is the patient needs to benefit. The patient needs to come out ahead, uh, and and how that happens is. There are a hundred ways to, to skin that cat. Um, let's not be skinning cats, but ignoring that part of it. Um, so the, when it comes to a, um, a 340B program for a hospital that is really serving the community, and this allows for access, yeah, I think there's a, there's a really good argument to be made that, you know what, pharma, you need to really help that hospital help the patients. Right. On the other hand, if you are a huge uh, hospital in in Kansas City and you are benefiting, chances are it's not necessarily, and, and, and I'm not pointing fingers for sure because I've never seen their finances, but you're not necessarily uh, benefiting the patients from that. This could be paying for lawsuits, for example, that that you, you incurred. And there's nothing wrong with that either. That's just the cost of doing business. But the point being that the request for transparency might be addressing that exact question. How are you address? If, if would would you be pointing out Genentech? Would Genentech be more would be hard pressed to reject a 340B like payment if everyone had to be more transparent about what you're doing with the money that Genentech's giving up? Right, and I, and that's been pharma's argument for the longest they want to see where the dollars are going um right. but they're also harming at the same time um and they believe well because we do a patient assistance program we're still helping the uninsured and underinsured there's a lot of 
of legal legalities to patient assistance. I used to run a patient assistance right. program at a large IDN. There's, um, there's, uh, um, the qualification you can meet. Yeah. The qualifications, and some of that is that they have to be U.S. citizens. Right. And so you have a lot of patients that fall out of that algorithm. They're not U.S. citizens. They don't qualify for traditional patient assistance. So they come to the safety net, and then they expect to get their medication. But how can they get it if they can't afford a $2,000 uh, chemotherapy, oral therapy drug? They can't afford yeah. that. So, yeah. and they don't qualify for the patient assistance. So guess where they end up? At one of these 340B safety net hospitals. Really take care of that patient. They can't turn them away. You know, the for-profit hospital down the street ain't going to take them. <laughs> but but could, could a not-for-profit turn down a patient who has a, has a chronic disease state? I know you can't turn them away in acute disease state, but I thought in you can't chronic, turn them away for chronic. They, I believe they can. I believe right. they can, but most most of the safety net's mission is to be there. They are the safety net, so they okay. take in the uninsured, the uh, the the non-resident, um, you know, uh, uh, non-U.S. citizen patients, yeah. and help them. So no. they are the ones who are shouldering. Okay, this patient can't pay, so they create those sliding scale fee programs. Okay, you know, contribute five dollars, zero dollars based on their financial status, and that's where most of those three forty B dollars end up going into programs like that. Should there be, like I said, a line on the IRS form explaining what they're doing with those dollars? Maybe so. Um, and are they padding some of that bad debt? Because you know they have a ton of it. Yeah. Um, especially in safety nets, they have a ton of yeah. bad debt, um, non-paid yeah. bills. Yeah, they're probably using those dollars that way too. Um, would I would I like to see that? I actually would like to see more transparency myself. Maybe that will get Genentech and other manufacturers and pharma to calm calm it down just a little bit. Have, have their coming to Jesus moment, as you put it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I I work a lot with pharma, and I, I like to, I like to think that they're still working with the best interest of patients at hand. Uh, but I think in the end, we need to all make sure that patients are um, are being taken care of. And I think we're just all looking at it from just different angles on how we how we help patients. So this was amazing. This was incredible. So again, Rita, this was amazing. I hope you um, you will consider coming back. I have a couple of questions for you, by the way. Would you be open to answering them? Sure, go ahead. The first question, and I've been sort of putting this up the whole time, how can people reach you? So um, my business, my company is Integrated Pharmacy Service Incorporated. Um, they can reach me at www.ipsconsults.com. That's my um, website. There is a contact form there that they can communicate. Um, or they can reach me directly via email at Rita dot basket at ipsconsults.com or my phone number. I take business calls to 704-408-1744. Um, if you're covered in it out there and you need 340B support, um, you can contact me. Or if you're a manufacturer, I work with manufacturers. I work with PBMs. I work with um, basically everyone in the 340B space. So I have experience educating, teaching, um, providing consulting support, um, everything in a realm of 340B. So please reach out. I'd love to help you. 
So I'm just curious. You, you said you work with manufacturers. Um, do you find who? Which department do you land up working with? Is it medical affairs? Is it supply chain? Is it uh, patient um, patients? What, what do you think? Interesting. Um, the manufacturers that I have helped in, in more of an education role actually went to the C-suite on a couple of smaller manufacturers. Um, they wanted to understand why they have to offer this price. And it's usually the sales teams uh, that bring this up because they're trying to figure out their market basket and figure out their pricing strategies. And 340B is always their stumbling block. So I've worked with um, with uh, some um, specialty manufacturers, um, oncology space, life sciences, um, different manufacturers doing educational support, just trying to teach them what this program truly is about. That sounds amazing. Okay, um, so my next question for you, based on the conversation we've had so far, what would you like to ask the audience? Um, what I would like to ask the audience is to do some more advocacy because that's the only way 340B will change. So okay. there are advocacy organizations out there for all covered entity types. You have you know, 340B Health for hospitals. You have uh, the Community Health Center organization, uh, NAC. You have several advocacy organizations that all advocate for the program. So they can give you tools. They can give you the resources to speak to your senators, your House of Representatives, um, and talk to them about the importance of the program for your community. And that's what I always like to ask. Dig your feet in advocacy. That's awesome. Um, here's another question for you. Um, what's something you learned in the last month? <laughs> I learned that... <laughs> Off the 340B topic, I learned that selling houses and moving is one of the worst things you can ever do. You probably see some boxes in the background. Uh, I'm in a transition right now. And remodeling a house, oh my gosh, I never realized how much work it takes to do a full gut remodel. So I'm learning to be a decor interior decorator. <laughs> I said, I might as well add that to the end of, of my pharmacist and my master's degree. Now I'm almost an interior decorator. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm about to move, so I, I feel you. Not oh. looking forward to that. That should be interesting. Um, let's ask this question. What's something that made you happy in the last week? Um, which made me happy. Um, funny enough, I have a daughter that's a tennis player, and uh, her school got to the state finals. Um, and they lost, but oh. what made me happy was that she played her heart out and she won her match. <laughs> so, there you go. And Very so cool. it's, um, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to create a budding, uh, next, uh, Serena Williams. I'm trying my hardest. So, I, uh, she makes me smile when I see her play her best. That's awesome. I was actually at the, the Will Smith, uh, was in Philadelphia, uh, yesterday. Oh, yeah. And he was doing a talk on, he released a new book called Will. I have no idea why I'm plugging him. I don't think he needs my plug. But uh, he, the first thing was the trailer for the movie he's doing on Venus. King Richard. King Richard, yeah. exactly. So it's funny you were talking about the, the tennis thing because it all popped up and was just very fresh in my mind. Um, last question. Yes. What is something most people don't know about you? Oh, interesting. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm kind of an open book. Um, uh, if you know me, um, you know, something you don't know about me. I, I don't know. I think I, I'm really an open book. There's not okay, a lot. Okay, this is question. What's something I don't know about you? Okay, something you may not know about me, that I am an avid world traveler. Maybe that's Ooh. something. 
There you I, go. Me too. Where I was the last place traveling. you went? Uh, say again? Where was the last place you went? Oh, good question. It was pre-COVID. So. Of course. <laughs> Internationally. Yeah. I'll put it this way. I would say my most eye-opening trip was my trip to Colombia, South America. I, I love it. I love it. Um, it is not a destination. I like to travel to places that are not your traditional vacation spot. And so yeah. I actually found my retirement city, which is Medellin, um, that I plan to hopefully relocate within the next five years. So that may be something no one knows about me that I plan to uh, take up residence in Colombia in five years. I've heard, I've heard incredible things about Medellin. Uh, I've never been. Uh, I, um, I was talking to some Colombians and they actually told me the most beautiful women in the world are Medellin. I was like, I will take your word on it. It, so, it is beautiful. The city is a renaissance and People don't know until they get there and you're like, all they know is Pablo Escobar. That's the only thing they know associated with Medellin. And I'm like, they don't even want you to mention his name when you get there. That's how yeah. we removed um, and anything associated with him, they've destroyed. So they don't want that image. They want you to know that they're a Renaissance city um, building a big expat community there um, of Americans. And the only hiccup that I have, because I only took, I only passed, let me say it right. I only passed two years of Spanish in high school. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that third year. No, not at all. <laughs> so my Spanish is un poquito, very small. Um, but I am working on it with my daughter. She's taking Spanish because we need to be, you really need to be, to me, uh, bilingual to to live. You can survive on Google Translate, but you can't live. Um right. In, in Medellin. Other cities, maybe a little bit more English is spoken, but I found Medellin to be completely Spanish. And it's a, it's a good Spanish. And so it's easier to understand and, 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 and follow along. Rita, this was amazing. This was a great conversation. I do hope, hope you'll consider coming back because there's so Definitely. much more to us. Definitely. You have me. <laughs> awesome. Thank I you again for being here. Good. Good. I'm glad. Thank you.